Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Alan Averill. You are listening to Agitators Anonymous. This is episode 11. A curious number. I'm not supposed to say the word curious anymore, but I just started with it. Um, Every number, I suppose, as we move into double digits, seems more... I'm not going to use the word astounding because it's definitely not astounding, but it's mildly surprising. It's fierce, mild as we say in Ireland when we describe weather that isn't really weather, because I didn't actually really anticipate that we would be still doing this into double figures and still ostensibly locked down. Um, it definitely feels like a long, long time since any of us went anywhere or had anything a little bit out of the ordinary. And so considering those things and considering people keep asking me basically what is going on in the music industry. I'm going to try and address a few things. I'm going to try and get back in my wheelhouse, so to speak, and discuss what is happening. Are we going to return to gigs? What might they look like? What is the future for some areas of the music industry? Um, my vague comments about politics the last time went down mostly positively, some less so, but... What I'm going to do is maybe leave a few of the political comments or at least observations till near the end of the podcast this time. So therefore, if you really are listening out for something that you're going to dislike, you're going to have to listen through all the other stuff first. No, I mean, in reality, I don't think I said anything that was too beyond the pale. 
But that said, I think we should return and discuss the music industry because I definitely discussed it a lot more at the beginning of the podcast. And as a musician who has coming up on three decades of a career and also played many festivals, toured and been working as a booking agency or a booking agent for the last three years, I think I do have a reasonably reasonably clear insight into how some of this might work. But yet at the same time, we are still in a holding pattern. We still are not quite sure about what's going to happen with venues and what's going to happen with gigs. So I'm going to, some of it is going to be conjecture. Some of it's going to be opinion. Some of it's just going to be me, maybe against the will of my employers and financial overlords. Um, although they are few at the moment. Um, I'm going to take a look at a few things. So the first thing is, is that we have to say if we get a second surge or a second spike, then this is going to change the game entirely. And I think, <clears throat> I mean, personally, I think that there won't be any gigs for the remainder of this year. I think we can kind of forget it, at least gigs as we knew it. I think that what we might have is a return of comedy and theatre. I think we might have small theatres um, where people are seated with people that they live with or their spouses with a strict procedure of going to the toilet and going to the bar. Um, I think this might happen for comedy and theatre. If that's your gig, if that's where you're involved in, then I think you will be involved in perhaps partial employment there. But yet again, those overheads are also difficult. But for a gig as we knew it, i.e., let's say a venue of two or three hundred people stuffed in, jumping around, dancing, um, this is almost impossible to socially distance. Uh, a friend of mine received a note from, uh, he was putting on a, a gig, a DJ gig in a venue, a small venue in Germany, and people were going to have to wear masks and observe social distance on the dance floor and essentially only really hang out with their spouses. I don't know how anybody enforces that, especially not in the confused goth scene, you know. Anyway, set that to the backdrop of the Westfalian region in Germany who just announced a stricter lockdown by virtue of some um, factory that wasn't observing lockdown rules and there was a spike. So we are not sure that we have defeated this thing. In fact, we very much haven't. I know it seems like we have. And I think that's because people are frustrated and bored and they're beginning to get very, very restless with this. But at the same time, we still stand here with no vaccine. We still stand here with no real concrete understanding of what to do with this. But by now, the financial implications of keeping society in this incredible lockdown are going to get more and more severe. I think the state the institutions of the state realize they can't just keep handing out money and that people, they need to rip the bandage off and people need to discover where we stand, the tourism industry, all this kind of stuff. So if we're going to have the proposal is socially distant gigs, that means a venue of a thousand might take 200 people or a venue of 200 might take 40 people. So you might have 10, 15 or 20 percent of the venue full. But of course, that means either you're going to have 
very big venues with super expensive ticket prices for very big bands, kind of people who are willing to pay 200, 250, 300 euro to make it financially viable to use such a big venue. Or maybe you're going to have like distance nightclubs. But for bands who are going to have to tour and go from venue to venue, they simply can't travel to fill a venue to 15, 20%. So if we do get some sort of second spike, I realistically think we might say goodbye to the following year as well as we knew it. Uh, Sorry to be the bearer of bad tidings and sound the death knell to be the harbinger of doom. And I hope I'm wrong. I really do hope that I am entirely wrong about this. I, and you know, people will say that I do err on the side of um, dreadful pessimism sometimes, but looking into the future, this is this and a bunch of other things that have happened and been announced are going to make this a very difficult prospect for touring bands. Um, because I think what's going to happen is that if we move into a, a 21, 20, if we move into 2021 and we are allowed to come and play, I think what's going to happen is that you're going to see a renegotiation of all of the door deals. You're going to see, because venues have been hemorrhaging money now for months and all of the crew and people working for them. So the venues that are going to be left standing are not going to want to pay the same door deals for bands that existed two or three years ago. So if you're a band that is on a nightliner or planning a two or three band bill and taking time off the your already strained work practices to go on tour to earn some money, potentially, this is going to be really, really difficult to fathom. How do we how do we propose we move ahead <clears throat> with our planning if we are only relying on door deals? If for very small bands, this is the big fear that I have is that well, it's not a big fear, but for very small bands things will be more or less the same as they were. And for very huge bands who can insulate themselves, but for all the bands in the middle, and this does include Primordial, and this does include my own situation, um, with no guarantees placed on literally anything, this is going to make 2021 very, very difficult. Some of you might have seen a tweet from Gary Holt from Exodus calling out Live Nation. Um, A a, a proposal was leaked by Live Nation a proposal from Live Nation to, I guess, local agents and promoters was leaked. And some of the things within that are pretty dark for musicians, to say the least. And let's be honest, shit runs downhill. So practices that are going to be maybe implemented, we could say, above my head or the likes of middling musicians will filter down. And for anybody who doesn't really quite realise... I mean, it is standard practice within the USA when you are on tour that venues will take a percentage of your merchandise for nothing. It doesn't matter where you've come from. You might argue that you've had to pay import duty. The deal between the dollar and, let's say, the euro might be not in your favor as a European band. At least it wasn't the last time we toured. But many venues will stand a person by the merch stand with a clicker clicking and then ask for that money despite the fact that as a European band you've paid a working visa into the United States at three to four thousand euro for a band. So basically what they're doing is taking your profit margin already. Now there are, are of course venues who don't adhere to this principle but there are many that do and most of the ones at least that I have played in in the United States um, have done this I would say. And this is going to be something that's going to start coming into most European venues as they try and take 
they try and absorb the impact of the money that they've lost. So this is going to cut the this is going to cut the potential profit for most bands. Um, for your bands who charge 40 and 50 and 60 euro for a t-shirt anyway, I mean, are they going to be really that bothered? But because they're playing in the huge venues, you know, the huge venues tend to do this. But for one, two, three, four hundred capacity venues, even a little bit bigger, this is not standard practice. Um, you might come across it in a few places in Switzerland, maybe. Uh, but it's not a standard practice. But I think it's going to become an industry standard practice. And then what happens then? The, the, the cost will be passed on to the consumer. So if you're in a socially distanced gig anyway, then buying a T-shirt on top of that might cost you 40 or 50, 60 euro because this is going to be the profit margin. So Life Nation, Life Nation um, their proposals are pretty grim, to say the least. What I'm going to do is go through a few of them. Don't worry, the whole podcast is not going to be only serious stuff about the music industry, but so many people have been asking me about it that I thought I might as well address some of it or some of my concerns. And like I said, I hope that they don't come to fruition. I am then going to look at or tell a story about one of the worst drunken nights of my life. Hilarious story. But that ended up being quite revealing to me and made me pushed me along the process of accepting responsibility, not only of being a musician, but a man, but of a human being, of, you know, a, a sentient human monkey on this rock hurtling through space. Anyway, I will get to that in a while and lighten the mood a little bit. But I think these things are worth considering because we all go to gigs. We all enjoy this thing, this, this, this thing we this communality, this common experience. So, because these practices will filter down through the industry, what they propose is a 20% pay decrease on all fees. Artists will have to organize their own travel and insurance. Now, the insurance thing is very important because you can, you've already noticed that with, you've probably seen the story that Hellfest have been arguing with their insurance company. No insurance companies will really want to pay out for what's just happened. I mean, what's just happened, an unprecedented pandemic which has shut down the world economy, <clears throat> is not something that insurance companies plan for or realistically are able, most likely, to absorb. But there's absolutely no way they're going to not try and do everything they can to wriggle out of taking any form of responsibility. So let's just say that there is a big storm which stops Primordial getting on a plane to travel to another country and play. Not only will the flight costs be leveled on our shoulders, we'll be, we will have to pay them for not having taken a flight, but the proposals also outline that any act not able to play for any reason, not just force majeure, they will be charged something like an extra cancellation fee. So if the festival is cancelled for low ticket sales, you will also be charged for this as a musician. Basically, what the attempt is, the attempt is to move all forms of risk onto the band. Now, as we stand, we still don't know what the airlines are going to do. Are they going to, after the last Icelandic volcano, ramp up their flight costs and keep them high? I mean... 10 years ago, you could send Primordial to Germany for 89 to 159 euro each return. But now 
those flights, looking at them six, seven, eight months out, are always 250 to 350 now. Um, not to mention artist withholding tax, all the other taxes on top of that, and luggage charges. If you, if Primordial is playing at Karmageddon Festival in, in Norway, this could be Dublin, Copenhagen, Copenhagen, Oslo, Oslo to Haugesund. Three sets of flights each way at 50 euro for every instrument per flight. So you can do the math and that will come out, of course, from your fee. And don't forget, everybody's going to be trying to lower their fee costs. So basically, if for any reason we are not able to play, and this could be an act of God, as would previously have been covered under um, these insurance company ethics, let's say, let's say that Icelandic volcano, we will have to pay as musicians for not being able to turn up at that festival, even if it's cancelled. And it will not just be us having to pay our flights back to the agencies, but also a extra cancellation fee. Um, and don't forget that Live Nation owns Ticketmaster and that in 2019 they made a conservative estimate $11 billion in profit. Over 40,000 shows. So I've obviously played a couple of shows that have been connected with them here and there, but Primordial is really not exactly in their... I keep using the word frame... I keep using the term wheelhouse because I've adopted it from Sam Harris or something, but it's never a phrase I've ever used before. Bit odd. Anyway, it's not... We're not quite at that level, but some of these things that I've just mentioned, we have been recently charged with, and... The discussion is for festivals that we were supposed to be playing this year that have been cancelled. If the flights are not rebooked, who pays for the flights? Well, shit runs downhill. And so therefore, it's going to be the musician's cost. Of course, personally, I believe that if you enter a casino or let's say you enter a you place a bet on a horse you don't go and ask the horse for your money back if that bet doesn't come through. So what does this what does this mean? Where does this leave us? Again, it leaves us in a holding pattern where we still don't really know. I mean, there is no doubt that socially distant gigs for touring bands is an impossibility. Um, there is no way that a band can feasibly tour in huge venues and only fill them to 20%. It will realistically be the end or the death of gigs as we knew them in terms of rock and roll. Not to be spurious about it, not to be silly about it, but it may be that the future will be for the foreseeable moments in time seated or seated gigs or standing isolated gigs with people in small little pockets. Um, so this would seem to me to be the death knell for rock and heavy metal because or punk or whatever, anything that relies on the 1976 model of getting out there and touring to break your band for, as I've mentioned before, some YouTubing influencing hip hop artist or bands who are streaming hundreds of millions. This won't really hurt them that much, but for small and medium bands who rely on getting out there and getting gritty and dirty in the back of a van, this might be the end of that for the foreseeable future, and especially if there's no vaccine and people are worried about second spikes and people crossing borders from other countries that have different 
health and safety precautions. Anyway, so, sorry if that seemed all a bit doomed and gloomed and dour, but it really does need, it really does need saying and contemplating. I don't really know what the answer is, but for sure, whatever industry comes out of this, let's just say in 2023 or 2022, is going to be drastically drastically different and people keep telling me oh this is a great time to be creative and make music and I think to myself really or is it not just a really great time to for more average music because people have nothing better to do I don't think there was a problem with good bands over the last 10 years I think there was lots of good music it's not something that needed fixing by simply just having more time on our hands that's how I would look at it if the artery of rock and metal is playing live well then right now it is severed and so this comes this moves me on to some of the things that I've been contemplating maybe more existential things maybe more personal things and that is how do you deal with the thing that was your purpose or the thing that had you had come to define you as your existence when that is literally taken away and I think that's that's part of the backdrop of so much of the com- the current frustration in society because personally, you know, okay, here's a quick political comment and that is that some people say universal basic income is a is a way out of the problems we're having in life right now, but I think that people need purpose, they need definition, they need focus. And this is not um and I'm not trying to say that as some sort of that's some sort of excuse for you know, the capitalist mark free market ethic or something like this. All I'm just trying to say is that I think we can see what people do when they have too much time on their hands, and that is try and tear society down. I think that things would be worse if people just didn't have a focus, an objective. And it's been quite a strange thing as a musician to have literally all of the structures beneath you pulled out from under you, where you had no... If you've spent your whole life living, working, breathing... The, the grimy venues, the spit and sawdust, the uh, machinations of the industry, everything from guitar shops to backstages to traveling to gigs to being in a van, being in an island, being around bands, being around, if that's basically your life, whether you might be a nurse who is committed to a life of trying to mend people and mend society and altruism, and then that is taken away from you absolutely and completely. Now, I'm not comparing those two things in their own sense of worth to the world, but they do have worth. And it's a very strange thing. I found it very difficult to cope with being with purposelessness. And this is one of the things that I think people maybe don't really realize is that traveling away and playing for a weekend, let's say, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday show gig, that feeling when you come back on Sunday of having achieved something, the sense that you have engaged in an emotional transaction with people who have come to see you and the things that you sang about, the things that have meant something to you, whether it's culturally, historically, socially, it's a simple emotional transaction. It's a human, it's a human process that you have been at the center of. And now I personally, I love the pressure. I love, I love that that whole process can depend on does your throat work? Can you sing? How do we conquer 1,000 different 
small, tiny problems to reach that great sense of achievement. And it is an incredible sense of achievement. And that, as a process that's just taken away, it's very hard to not feel completely unmoored from your sense of purpose. Now, for people who have been, let's call them institutional band guys or band girls, for the people who have become the mini Lemmys and that this is just what they are, it defines them, more so than maybe people who had kept up the, the career or the factory job or put time into a family. Personally, that was just something that the way the cards fell that I didn't do till now. I mean, like I said, I talk about a 30-year career in Primordial, but um, this year I'm 45 years old. So we started very young. Sometimes I make it sound like we're in our dotage already, which we aren't. We just happen to have started very young. But the point being that we all felt there are times for exploring these other avenues, but what the whole situation we're in now has done is expedited all of these things. They've moved everything forward so that you've got a very clear view into, oh, this is what life is like after playing music, after the band, after everything, after the curtains close, this is it. And it's a very clear, in, a clear and stark view into life without purpose. And without that sense of achievement. And that's a similar sense of achievement I get from playing sport, from having other people rely on me in a team, from doing my best. At the moment, I'm just running, so it's a solitary pursuit, but it gives me no enjoyment. It gives me no sense of purpose. Everything you are doing is fundamentally an, an isolationist policy, so to speak. This is me speaking in an empty room. I'm not talking to anybody else. In fact, all I'm talking to is statistics as I see them rack up on the board. And thank you for listening and moving those statistics, of course. But at the same time, it is a monologue. It is a one-way street, more or less, except for the very generally polite and lovely direct messages I do get from you of support. And it does make things seem worthwhile, but that sense of... Also, it's a sense of winning. It's a sense of victory. It's a sense of achievement. And I can't undermine those things that somehow as a functioning man in society they are the things whether, whether through artistic or creative endeavour that give you definition and without them you definitely feel unmoored moving away from the bank of common sense you find yourself in throw to incredible incredibly complex and dark thoughts and moving through emotions far quicker than you used to. I'm not known for that. Actually, I'm quite the stoic, so to speak. I might actually talk, do a small little explanation of stoicism, but I'm not a person who admires extremities of emotion. Anybody who knows me may say the same thing or call me the C word, whatever they wish. But the point being that this whole situation provokes things that are not commonsensical because you've had the methods of process and agency in this world taken from you. And I think that that's reflected across society 
in an awful lot of the rage as people are just finding, as I said in the last episode, the algorithm is playing them perfectly, playing them into into their polarization because they are lacking other senses of measurement by which to become or let's say to have agency in this world. So right now, the whole holding pattern as a musician that we are in um, is profoundly influencing these incredible swings of mood and variance of um, attitude towards things. And I can't say that I'm feeling particularly positive about the situation. Anyway, this is about this second half of the podcast. I'm going to try because I've been in the beginning when I started the podcast, I didn't have a clock. I was just randomly talking. But now I see that where my rambling is. I see it pinpointed on the clock. <clears throat> and I've never, ever had a watch. So that may tell you something about the life that I've lived. Anyway, so what I want to talk about is a funny story. It's almost tragicomic, but it is one of the pivotal moments in my musical career that made me want to accept responsibility. Now, the thing about it is, is that when you're young, of course, you're like a kid in a sweet shop and someone's just given you the keys. All of a sudden you're on tour. There's alcohol, there's drugs, there's women you thought you could never speak to that you are speaking to. There's all sorts of quite incredible, uh, let's say, um, it's like somebody just draws a little veil back and you go, oh, OK, so this is the things that I wanted to do. This is the this is the other aspects of being a musician, although you don't really think of yourself as a musician. I always thought of myself, well, I'm the guy who started singing because I couldn't play an instrument well enough. And you just fall into it. And most bands never make it past four or five gigs and then they quit. For whatever reason, we stuck the course. We stayed the course. And for years and years, I do remember specifically around the time of Gathering Wilderness, being in the studio and singing The Coffin Ships. And this was one of the first albums where I really, really stretched out the voice. You know, I could sing a bit because doing OK with the, I consider the relatively um, menial talent that you have. You have some talent, but for some people, it's absolutely natural all the time. They, they, they don't need to work at it. For those of us who have to work at procuring this talent, it needs to be grown. It needs to be watered. And now part of that is with confidence. It's the confidence in your own ability. And part of that is about accepting responsibility, not only as a musician, but as a man, as a human being. And there's few moments where I think are really, really pivotal, um, where you go from being a hobbyist, a person who um, just sort of scrapes by a lot of those early primordial gigs people come up to me like I said in other podcasts and go oh Alan you know I saw you in 2003 and you know you kicked kicked this guy in the head in the first row and smashed this blah 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 and an awful lot of those gigs you realize were flying by the seat of their pants as we say like 1950s dad but you were you know you were fumbling through life and then we we made the Gathering Wilderness and then you had to sing, I had to sing the Coffin Ships. And I realized that 
there were moments after we made that album where we started to play live where I I was so dreading singing that and that may seem very strange to people who know me they assume that I'm always full of confidence but it didn't always it wasn't always like that it was something that needed to be nurtured because I think the confidence is the greater part of singing the ability to believe that I'm going to nail this I'm going to do this I'm going to succeed at singing this better than I did the last night or better than on the record but that definitely wasn't where I was standing in 2006 I was in a sense cowed by my own performance on the album where you can do in a sterile environment of the studio and that one of the first gigs where we played after the Gathering Wilderness I remember looking out into the crowd and it was in Dublin I could see my friends looking at me and you could see people going oh is he going to do this is he going to sing this bit correctly and I didn't I absolutely didn't. I completely fucked it up. I think I sang it really, really poorly. And those were the moments where you sat in the backstage afterwards for an hour just staring into the middle distance, into empty space, considering considering the measurement of your own ability. How much of this is just luck that you've fallen into this happenstance of being in a band? Are you a charlatan? Are you really a musician? How are you going to overcome this this trial and that's not to put too flouncy a process on the language you know it's it, it it felt like a trial and somewhere around about 2007 2008 when between together and Willis and the nameless dead when we started to play more gigs I realized okay you have to step up to the plate as a musician as a human being and let the party and let the whiskey and let the whatever standing around being cool, whatever you're doing, that has to come second. Now, sometimes a close second. I can admit that. But you're going to have to stand on stage in front of more people. The pressure is going to be greater. Either you wilt and you just become known as one of those singers like, oh, he's pretty good in the studio, but yeah, live, he hasn't really got it, which I would have been considered for years. And you have to, somehow, something has to change. You have to accept responsibility. And around about 2007, 2008, I think that's the realization where you go, where I, at least for me, I went, okay, I am a musician now. And maybe that's because you started to make a little bit of money, which you never made before, and it put a little bit more pressure on you to accept the terms of responsibility. And also being a little bit older, helped but definitely there was around about 2008 a definite change but there was one moment in 2010 which was I think the defining moment of the last 10, 12, 14 years for me so I'll put this into here's the silly rock and roll story that maybe after if you've got this far with me after half an hour um, I'll unburden myself with this silly story for the last while so we played in Finland now, Finland is a place I love a lot. A lot of f- good friends there, a lot of bands we've toured with. But it's always the place where I get into the most trouble or have the most crazy stories. Um, if I was, to, if you had to push me in my top 20 silly stories or most rock and roll stories, at least four or five would be from Finland. Um, and I have a few in reserve that I'm going to tell. But this specific one, let's roll with this. And this was the one that made me accept a bit more responsibility. So 
we're playing with Absu, I think, in Nosturi, which sadly has been knocked down now. I think it must be 2010. Um, and it was a long set. We'd started to play two hours, two hours 10, two hours 15. And the previous couple of years, I generally, generally started to knock the heavy booze a little bit on the head, at least with a soft mallet, maybe. I was slowly, slowly pushing that tent peg into the ground. Um, Whereas there would be moments in the mid-2000s where I'd definitely been sculling half a bottle of whiskey before the gig and the other half on the stage. And then all madness would occur afterwards. And it became, you realised you were becoming a bit of a parody of yourself, a bit of a cliche. But this was the final straw. So we're playing, it was about two hours into the set. It's going pretty good, a lot of people there. Um, We'd just been in the finished charts, I think, with one of the albums. So... There was like mainstream press there and media there. And I don't know who it was, but um, thank you, Angel of Mercy or Devil, who appeared who uh, appeared to uh, tempt my worst nature out, whatever you want to call it. But uh, this was the hard lesson. So whoever that was, the drum road, he just put a bottle of Jim Beam on the drum riser about two hours in. And I just decided, right, I'm having that. That's that's going in my face and I'm going to have that and no joke drank the entire thing straight I would say in about 15-20 minutes maybe less even might have even been four or five chugs whatever I was just like that fuck it I'm having this and then proceeded to spend the last two or three songs in the crowd just jump feet first into the crowd all hell broke loose fighting um, just in the crowd surrounded by people um, I made the cover of the newspaper the next day. It said something like, oh, the, the fighting Irish keeping the spirit of Shane McGowan alive. And the next, let's call, let's say eight hours were a big, chaotic, insane learning curve. Came off the stage, never even bothered to change out of my stage clothes, corpse paint, whatever. Just literally more whiskey, couple of things I shouldn't really be doing or talking about, no doubt. Um, and we were just like, I was just like, right, let's go out, we're going out into the city, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Ended up in a, some karaoke place underneath where we were, someone gave her a microphone, straight into painkiller. I have a feeling I just behaved like a complete asshole, broke something, just being a dickhead, being a pain in the arse. Um, me and a friend of mine, we just went out and the whole night was basically fighting with bouncers, taunting other bands, being a complete dickhead, being an absolute pain in the hole, just getting thrown out of nightclubs, getting thrown out of venues, ending up at random house parties, disappearing. Um, and... It was a literally like a five, six, seven, eight hour blackout splurge of whiskey fueled stupidity. Um, at the time, fun, of course, whatever. And that moment, I guess you've all had it where you wake up at nine in the morning like like a, uh, a train's hit you. But you lie there for a few seconds and you go, oh, no hangover. How have I fluked this one? Um Beside me on the bed, fully clothed, was my friend. And she looked at me like, what the fuck? What? How did we end up in this? We don't even remember how we even got back to the hotel. 
nothing understood, no brains, just a complete absence of fact. And I came down the stairs and all of my gear was just neatly piled on a few shelves, all my stage gear, all my microphones. And I said to the woman, well, how, how did it, uh, this all get like this? And it's, oh, you have come down in the middle, uh, I can't finish accent, you have come down in the middle of night and fixed this yourself or whatever. And I'd neatly tidied everything in a whiskey stupor, fallen around the place, but neatly packed everything like a little elf. Um, you know, it's, I'm going to have to tell the other Finland stories sometime for context. Um, needless to say, one of them ended up with the band. No, no, I can't. I, I won't go there. It'll just distract me for another 15 minutes. But the point of this is more like a morality tale, this story. There are more juicy details. My phone started immediately ping, 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 pinging as all these messages from my Finnish friends. You're a fucking asshole. You're a dickhead. What did you do? You insulted this person. You blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there was a certain amount of kind of like, you know, you're a little bit joke, uh, Loki, Loki-like in that there's a part of me would come out which would be a bit like kind of devil may care. Let's let's see if how far we can push things and people and getting into a bit of trouble and scrapes and hijinks. Never aggressive, generally, or I'm going to punch the head off you, Dublinese, but always like just trying to push the limit a little bit all the time very Irish very rabble rousing very dickheadishness anyway so I came down next morning and I remember saying to Kieran oh it's a pretty good gig and he just fixed me with a look and he said if you ever do that ever again that literally will be the end of the band um, and I said literally again he did say it it was literate uh, no it, uh, this is the end of the band because the band is not a backdrop for you to do that these songs mean something and you have meant something when you wrote them. They aren't a backdrop for you to jump into the crowd and hit people. And it hit me like a ton of bricks and he was entirely right. Now, I've been pretty good the previous few years about reining in some of the more heavy booze instincts of rock and roll and that kind of stuff. Still subscribing to a bit, to it a bit, but it's like putting on a fancy waistcoat and then bulging out of the bottom a little bit and then you realise no, I need to I need to tone up and lose a little bit of weight but you're still squeezing into the old waistcoat and until you do actually get lean and trim mentally the waistcoat is a rather bizarre metaphor but until you start to get lean and trim mentally and, and be able to go okay I can play my hand with I can drink some wine I can actually enjoy the company of the people that I'm supposed to meet and not always want to tear it to the end of the marathon it's that it's a it's a pursuit of recklessness of rock and roll that you subscribe to when you fling your hat in the ring with rock and roll but there has to be a moment where you do accept that okay you are not um do you want to be one of the tragic comic figures in rock and roll history those those bands that by the time they get to 50 you can tell oh you've been on the booze too long or the kind of band guy that goes home after the heavy weekend and the first thing you do on Monday morning is clink clink get out the vodka and Red Bull and do a line of speed on a Monday because they paid the rent with their festivals and they don't have any other responsibilities and what it does is it encourages irresponsibility and it's it's quite natural I think for a while to fling yourself into that and just say 
to everyone around you. Well, look, this is how it is. These are the parameters that I'm going to try and live my life. And there's a certain amount of recklessness and righteousness in that you are creating your own mythology, your own stories. But there still has to be a chink of light of recognition that comes through where you go, oh, you know what? I didn't sing that as well as I could. So this is the learning curve. And now I have to kind of wake up and go, you know what? Maybe keep that bottle with you till afterwards, and but still make sure you're always on the flight. Keep your bad mood to yourself, but sing those songs correctly. And that actually was the last time I got really, really fucked up. There might have been one or two other times here and there. Of course, you're only human. But that was the last time I got really, really messed up. And it was a steep learning curve. And it was, there are Finnish friends I have who still think it's one of the best gigs they've ever seen us play. But at the same time, I shouldn't be in the crowd thumping people and singing the coffin ships. And there's a very great sense that I did that and I was 34, 33. I think I was just still about young enough to get used to it or to get away with it. Now, as you're in your 40s, do you really want to be that guy? That guy? That's one of the reasons why I made a post I did on Instagram about Abad, um, a good guy who 20 years ago we had toured together a few times, not just as primordial, but I was working for uh, a tour agency as a, you know, as a roadie and stuff. And there's a moment where you have to have a realization that if you're going to be the institutionalized band guy and become that person who doesn't have all these other things to keep them structured, whether it is the family or whatever it's going on, that you're going to be that guy who is the mini Lemmy. Um, as you get older, it's unbecoming. It's unbecoming, you know. We all maybe did ecstasy when we were kids. You know, if you're from a working class city, probably you did, like in Dublin in the 90s. I mentioned it in the other podcast. And it's one thing to be 22 or 3 in a dark corner gurning with your friends, but it's another thing to be 45 in a brightly lit room in a pub gurning with your gurning with your friends. And it's somehow just a little bit mutton dressed as lamb. No, definitely not. Um, it's just uh, there's something unbecoming about just rolling into your 40s being the band guy. And if you're going to do it in a reckless way where you know where you're headed um, and you do have a little mini Gigi Allen on your shoulder pushing you towards the end and you accept it, then OK. But even the people who still did that were very often still able to bring out the show. It's when there's it starts to roll into the show. And it definitely was for me happening that I was definitely drinking too much. And after that, I stopped really drinking heavy booze and moved on to wine and realized, oh, as an act of mercy towards everyone else, it made me a nicer person, a little bit easier to get along with. So what I was trying to do there was move through a conversation about accepting responsibility and how res purposefulness and purposelessness and responsibility in this strange situation we are in, we are in the temptation for a lot of people has been to hit the booze and hit it hard. And a lot of musicians are feeling lost and without purpose. And it's taken an awful lot of self-control to not go, well, maybe I should just buy a bottle of vodka today. 
And maybe if the pubs were open, I might be sitting around the corner in the pub telling this to the barman rather than making a podcast. I don't know. Not really my style to be the drunken classic barfly and who's then pissed on a Monday at 7 p.m. However, you never know. You never know. And so there is definitely a feeling of purposelessness that defines the current moment. And I think it's seeping into politics. It's seeping into our lives. It's seeping into how we deal with each other. People are becoming taught and fraught. And I said in the last podcast, I talked a bit about how I think that what's happening now is some sort of unwinding of 10 years of social media having literally fried our brains. Before I made this podcast, I put a, I opened Twitter just to see. I got rid of my own Twitter years ago because I just didn't need another place to argue. And I don't argue about politics generally online anymore because it's just a, that all that is is flinging shit into a sewer. I will get into debates with people that I know and people I love and assume that we are allowed still to do that. But at the same time, I think everyone is on tender hooks because even that three or four minutes on Twitter before I came on to do this angered me. And I ended up cutting and pasting a story and sending it to somebody because I had to had to recreate some kind of mild outrage. Look at this. Have you seen this? And then realized with the next message, wow, I'm really sorry. I dragged you into my outrage for that moment and then you realize you I was just perfectly played by Twitter I hadn't opened it in a week and here it was going hello Mr. Averill here's something to outrage you and to keep you on the platform and to share a link so other people will be drawn into the platform it was just so perfect and just gave me this really profound not to say I'm not going to do it again but it definitely gave me a really profound moment and insight into Oh, this is one of the reasons why we're in this crazy situation right now as a society. If they could turn the Internet off for three months, I think an awful lot of situations will be solved because we are being played by the algorithm. We're being played. And the multinationals and the companies that are telling us that they cared. Don't forget those were the multinationals and companies and banking systems that 10 years ago, 12 years ago, the Occupy movement was trying to protest. Those are the same companies that are now sponsoring protests. Do you see what I'm getting at? This form of polarization and recreational outrage, which we're we're being asked to stoke the fires of, is driven by these companies. It's driven by the algorithm and it's driving people to derangement. I think our brains are broken. Like we got, as I said, too much shock, electroconvulsive shock therapy. We need to somehow pull back from the brink of this and engage in some form of debate. I know I am meandering into some form of political observation now here for the last few minutes. I don't know if it's needed. Like I said in the last podcast, does anybody really need my opinion on all these things? I don't know. I mean, for sure, my phone is sitting here on the table and the phone is listening anyway. So, you know, maybe the phone will get the edits that I cut out that you guys, you guys don't get. <laughs> You'll read about them in there. Oh, I don't know. But 
it's very clear that I see so many people fetishizing extreme polarization. For example, you know it. I mean, who really needs my opinion about these things? But people talking about abolishing the police, abolishing the police. I think we can look what happens within some countries when you abolish law and order and structure. You abolish the police. You abolish all of this. And it's called Libya. It's called failed states in the Middle East and Africa or from the former Eastern Bloc or maybe failed South American or Central American states. There's examples of structureless lawlessness the world over. And most of the time, those citizens, it's not a place they wish to live. Retrain, reskill, weed out corruption is one thing. But to abolish the police, I think what will happen is you will just get rich people hiring their own police force. And most people then living with the consequences. Abolish the prisons. Abolish prisons. But prisons are also home to murderers and rapists and child molesters. They're home to many of society's worst human beings. Now, of course, if you're going to say, we need to review anyone who was arrested and convicted of long drug sentences under different and incorrect drug laws. Now, that's a policy I could consider, but just abolish prisons. The end of privately owned prisons, which are just only run for profit. Yeah. Can get behind that also. What I don't, what I think people who don't really realize who fetishize anarchy, for example, is that they still think hospitals are going to run or somebody's going to work at the electric power plant, that people are still going to bring food across the country to stock shelves. It might work in a commune of a few dozen people, but for cities with millions of people, it is a, a utopianism because you may consider the, as I said, services and institutions such as the police force, you may consider that something that you want to abolish, but then do you really think people who drive ambulances are going to come into those areas? And what you will see is then it won't just be you can't just pick and choose the institutions of the state that you wish to uphold when you wish to abolish the state. So, of course, you really think schools, colleges, education systems, um, all of these things, like I said, the electric power grid, maybe the Internet itself, um, all of these things will come under incredible pressure one by one. They don't exist in a vacuum from each other. So I'm very worried that the fetishization of anarchy, which has been provoked by, as I said, this decade-long outrage machine that is polarizing us, is, as I said on my Instagram, it's a LARPing revolution. And for people who don't understand that term, it's live-action role-playing. It's LARPing at revolution. But some of us have been, like I've been to Russia. I've been all across the Eastern Bloc. I've been to Central America, to South America, across Southeast Asia, to Vietnam, to 
many, many countries and seen what revolution does or what violent revolution does and the repercussions for society. And the trail is millions dead. And I think people really need to be careful with acting like they're playing a computer game, you know. I've even been to the killing fields in Cambodia. I've seen Year Zero, where in the mid-1970s, the Khmer Rouge hunted people with glasses, mathematicians, scientists. And they tried to start a society. Most people don't realize that Brother Number One went to study in Paris. He was a child of this, let's call it cultural, Marxist, post-World War II academic structure. And people now who are LARPing at revolution, I think they really need to be wary about the forces that they are playing with because the veneer of civilization is so thin. And while they don't see the potentiality for its collapse, because I think they all believe they're starring in a version of their own life, starring themselves, because they've been inculcated with 10 years of selfish narcissism and self-veneration. I don't entirely blame them for all of that because that's the technological cards you've been dealt. But at the same time, they're LARPing with something that's very dangerous, atavistic, animalistic forces that might come to play. Or perhaps my worry has been somewhat played by my own algorithm and that for three months we've been on lockdown only fed information through this screen. And the reality is that I've been perfectly manipulated into this process as well. And I'm now telling you my political opinions when you never ask for them. No one asks for them. Anyway, episode 11, Agitators Anonymous. Debate is the only way. Talk is the only way. So go and try and heal some polarized wounds or just tell me to fuck off. I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band. Who needs my opinion about all these things? What I wanted to do was just to have a, a observation, a view of purpose, of responsibility, of the process of those things and how we deal with the potentiality of a future where those goalposts have very much moved and the parameters have very much moved. How's your mental health? Anyway, remember, that's the end. Episode 11, Metal Never Bends. Follow me on Instagram, Promodial underscore Nemtianga. Patreon, all the usual things. Or my YouTube channel, just search Alan Averill. There'll be some more video casts and other things coming up there. Until then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 